0: You know, with cosmology, there's a very old saying that something to the effect of, um, you know, there's speculation, then there's more speculation, and then there's cosmology. Um, Some of this stuff is based very much on observed fact um, but a lot of it is is speculative Hello everybody Julian Charles here of
1: themindsrenewed.com coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK now I would normally say Coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK, but of course I can't say that because it hasn't been usual for some time. It has now been several weeks since the last podcast from TMR, for which I do apologise for that long delay in getting back behind the microphone. Um, As many of you will have noticed by the picture that I put up on the website, I have been involved in renovation work at our house. Uh, That sounds a bit grand, but um, nevertheless, there's some truth to it over the last several weeks, and uh, I basically just could not put this off any longer. This is something that I really needed to get down to and hadn't got to for a very long time, and I thought, well, the only way that I'm going to find time to do this properly is just to put various things on hold in life, including TMR, I'm afraid, um... Now that picture that I put up was of our bathroom with all the holes in the wall and the fancy pipe work which looks incredibly ambitious for me. Uh, That's true, it indeed was far too ambitious for me and uh, I uh, had to pay somebody else to do that work. I am no plumber. Mine was essentially the decoration work and I now have pretty much decorated the whole house by now. So that is coming to an end. Not quite, but uh, almost. So I'm delighted now to say that the light is very clearly there at the end of the tunnel. I said that I would be back in July, and here I am with the great help of my good friend and friend of the show, Mark Campbell, our roving reporter here at TMR. But uh, more of that in just a moment. Just before I get on to that, I want to say a special thank you to all of you. A small band, indeed. A small band of people who support TMR financially. Because I knew this was going to be a long delay, I did put a note up on the website to say that if anybody who supports the show feels they need to adjust the amount that they donate to this work, or perhaps take a pause with giving, then I would completely understand that. And uh, I have to say that I am, and I mean this quite genuinely, I know people say this word a lot, but I, I mean this genuinely, I am humbled to say that not one person changed their support at all. Um, And I say I'm humbled by that because I wasn't sure. I thought that people would do that. But everyone continued their support, which was absolutely marvellous. Not least because the costs, of course, pretty much carry on the same, whether you're putting out content or not. But also important because it speaks of a certain commitment to what I'm doing here and an understanding of what I am doing and have been doing here, that you know this is not just for what each person themselves might get from these podcasts and from this website, but that this stands here as a ministry, an odd kind of ministry, but a ministry nonetheless. So thank you again to you, the small band of supporters who keep this show going. Thank you very much for your faithful support. Anyway, as I say, hopefully I am back on track here-ish. But of course, because it's now summer, that presents its own challenges for this kind of creativity. But I shall make every effort to get back onto something more of a regular basis. And please, as always, do check out the schedule page for things that are coming up. So to today's programme, this is TMR number 223. And it's an interview conducted by Mark Campbell, specifically for TMR, of the science writer here in the UK called Brian Clegg. And it's on his book, which has the provocative title, Before the Big Bang. Yes, indeed, you may be asking, as I was asking when I first heard about this, what do you mean, before the Big Bang? I mean, isn't the isn't part of the understanding of the Big Bang that this is the beginning of space and time, so what sense is there to talk about it before anyway? Well, this is a question that Mark asks, and uh, you'll have to wait to hear what the answer is from Brian Clegg. All very interesting stuff. Now, I have um, a few comments to make at the end, but uh, all I will say just for the moment is that I think this is a very interesting interview. I think Mark does a good job in bringing out a lot of the important points. I. I didn't read the book. Mark read the book, um, and he clearly enjoyed it and learned from it and recommended it to listeners, um, and obviously got on with Brian very well in the interview. And I have to say that I rather like Brian's approach, as I say, in the interview, because I haven't read the book, so I can't talk about his approach in the book. But judging from the interview, as I suspect he takes the same approach in the book, I like his open-mindedness. I like the fact that he seems to be unafraid of saying it the way he sees it. I'm not sure that I agree with everything he says. I'm not sure that I am clear, actually, on everything that he said, but more of that later on. But uh, my overall impression is that I think he's a very interesting chap to listen to, very engaging. So I hope you enjoy this conversation between Mark Campbell and the science writer Brian Clegg on his book Before the Big Bang. Well, thanks very much for
2: talking to me, Brian. Um, Now, just to go briefly through your life history, as it were, well, you are born in Rochester. Sorry, Ro- <laughs> Rochdale. <laughs>
0: That's right.
2: Born in Rochdale. Um, you've got two MAs, one in natural sciences specializing in experimental physics and the other one in operational research. Now, mm-hmm. tell me briefly about that. That sounds interesting. So it's mathematics and probability to warfare and also to business problem solving.
0: Yeah, it came out mostly from physicists uh, during the Second World War um, when they were brought into everything from uh, developing new technology through to using statistics. Uh, so uh, a typical application then was something like, what's the best pattern of depth charges to blow up the submarine? Uh, but after the war, it became applied a lot more to business and other organisations. So the NHS uses it and uh, a number of big organisations use it, basically just mathematical problem solving in the, in the organisation. Right, sort of financial depth charges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, or sh- scheduling, for instance, in the case of an airline. It's an obvious example. Okay, okay. Um,
2: now, if I can talk to you about the book you wrote before the Big Bang, which was published in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, if you could just take me through very briefly, and this podcast is for, I suppose, the intelligent layperson, the top few theories that you discuss in there, starting with the Big Bang and going on to some of the more esoteric ones and whether during the last decade or so anything has changed on whether one theory is sort of ruling the rooster over other theories.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, what tends to happen with scientific theories is that, you know, there are always a number around. Science isn't really about proving the absolute truth. It's getting to the best theory given uh, the information we have at the moment. Mm. And what's happened with the Big Bang is that, from i guess that the, the 60s it started coming through as the most likely idea this is the idea essentially that the whole universe started um about 13.8 billion years ago effectively as a point uh, an almost a non-existent point yeah. um and that it expanded from that to become what we have today uh there's a lot of evidence that fits with that uh, There's a lot of evidence that seems to support that mm. um at the time it was very much up against another theory called steady state where that idea was that the universe has been around forever and was continually being created and expanding. Um, But, as more evidence came in, for instance, as we look outwards in space, we look back in time because light takes time to get to us. So we can see back billions of years in time. And when you look back billions of years in time, the universe doesn't look the same as it does now. The the galaxies are different and things like that. And if the steady state theory had been correct, it seemed more likely that actually back in time would look the same. Mm. So that got pushed to one side fairly early on, although Fred Hoyle, who was one of its uh, main developers, always felt it could have been developed further to match the, the observations. As you say, since the Big Bang, there, the, there certainly have been quite a few possible alternatives, but at the moment that still remains the single definitive most likely theory for the beginning of the universe.
2: Mm. now you mentioned your book you were first when you heard about it rather dubious about about the big bang theory yeah you were a bit of
0: a steady state fan um have you changed your view now well yes i mean we're going back a long way i mean we're going back to my teens then back then um but yes essentially it it was partly because i've always had a huge amount of respect for fred hoyle who was an amazing scientist and came up with some incredible ideas But also, uh, back then, it really wasn't clear uh, that there was one idea that was better than another. Um, And so, you know, there were plenty of people on either side of the argument. Uh, But over time, obviously, uh, the the initial big thing that started to support it was this thing called the cosmic microwave background radiation. So this radiation that permeates all of the universe and it seems to have come from the very early times, probably when the universe was about 380,000 years old. Um, and that radiation, the, the way that's distributed through space, was a very strong piece of evidence towards uh, something like the Big Bang, mm. where you started with something relatively small that then, then expanded.
2: But as I understand it, the Big Bang on its own isn't enough. You also need to have the inflation
0: theory added on, is that right? Yes, that's why things start getting a little more flaky. Mm -hmm. Um, The original Big Bang theory didn't work as more evidence was provided. And this was why Fred Hoyle was a bit irritated that this was never done to his theory. But Mm -hmm. the Big Bang theory was basically enhanced to bring in these new observations. So specifically this idea of, as you say, inflation, which requires the universe to grow incredibly quickly Mm -hmm. from the size of almost nothing. Uh, up to somewhere between the size of a grapefruit and the size of the sun. Nobody's exactly sure the exact size, but basically billions and billions of times bigger in a tiny fraction of a second. Um, That solves a lot of the problems, uh, though we still not really have any great evidence that actually happened, except that that would make the theory fit. So there's limited evidence at the moment for inflation, uh, except that it makes the theories work well.
2: So is that squaring the idea of the size of the universe with how old
0: it is? Um, Well, the the requirement for inflation really wasn't so much to do with the size because inflation is an incredibly fast expansion far faster than the speed of light Um, it then continued to expand and still expands and that's how it got to the size it is, that latter expansion. Inflation was more required for various technical things like the fact that different parts of the universe were basically too far apart to have communicated with each other uh, and yet they somehow seemed to be similar in a way that implied that they had been in contact. So it, it was dealing with technical issues rather than just getting it to the size it is now
2: okay and a passage i read in your book that sort of blew my well a lot of it <laughs> blew my mind in one sense but there was a bit where you said that nothing travels faster than the speed of light but if space-time was expanding uh then that could travel faster than the speed of light because speed of light requires space to exist so it's it's quite a hard concept to grasp isn't it yeah you could have both you could have the universe expanding faster than the speed of light because that's all there that's the whole of existence so within that the speed of light wouldn't be broken, but the actual matter of space-time would be much faster.
0: Yes, but basically the the speed of light limit, as it were, the the thing about things not going faster than light, is down to relativity. Mm. And that is very much something that is defined within the framework of the universe. Uh, But this is the idea that the framework of the universe itself was expanding, and that that isn't limited by relativity. Um, Now, you... (sighs) I'm
2: going to be devil's advocate, is the title of misnomer? because mm. <laughs> it's a very good title, whether it's yours or the publisher's. Um, it's an excellent title, but presumably if the Big Bang is correct, then uh, although you said that there's virtually nothing before the Big Bang, I mean, was there a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of material before the Big Bang or was there nothing before the Big Bang? Because the Big Bang is everything, so time began at the Big Bang.
0: Okay, um, basically... The- <laughs> There's two things here. The reason for the title is that primarily the uh, the British Science Association did a survey a decade or so ago before I wrote the book in which they asked people what scientific question would they most like asked and the poll was topped by mm. literally what came before the Big Bang. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. That, that kind of frames the title. Yeah. Now, If the Big Bang theory is correct – Strictly speaking, there is ever so slightly before, because the Big Bang is the start of the expansion, which actually should start ever so slightly after things come into existence, uh, which is a slightly different thing. Um, However, with some of the other theories, it is possible that there is a before. So some of the other theories uh, suggest, for instance, that there was a universe before that perhaps uh, collapsed into something like a point and then expanded again, for example. So the before is really exploring the possibilities. Um, I ought to always say, with you know, with cosmology, there's a very old saying that something to the effect of, um, you know, there's speculation, then there's more speculation, and then there's cosmology. Um, <laughs> some of this stuff is based very much on observed fact, um, yeah. but a lot of it is is speculative.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, let me ask you something. I don't know if you've heard of the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig.
0: I have, um, haven't, known.
2: Right. Well, apparently, I haven't uh, read his book, but he argues that any universe which has, an av- on average, been expanding throughout its history can't be infinite in the past, but must have a space-time boundary. And he apparently bases this claim on the works of uh, Arvin Board, Alan Guth, and Alexandra Vilenkin. Have you heard of those?
0: I've heard of Guth, yeah.
2: Okay, the quote from this book, he wrote uh, Vilenkin's book, Many Worlds and Model, I haven't read this, mm. uh, says, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. I mean, what's your comment on that?
0: I'm I'm not aware of the basis of that statement. It may well be possible to make it in terms of, you know, all the respectable theories suggest something happened Mm. about 13.8 billion years ago, which you could regard as a start for our universe. But it does not preclude in any way there being a larger and potentially infinite and always existing universe uh, within which ours is, if you like, a bubble that has grown sure. within that larger framework, what's sometimes called the multiverse. Right. Uh, so if, if you take that, the multiverse is really just a big word for the real, real universe, and ours is just a bit of it. Sure. If that picture is true, I can't see any reason why that multiverse can't be uh, infinite and have been there forever.
2: I was going to mention that. So you've got multiverses. In the book, you say that there is no evidence yet for the multiverses. I guess that's still the same, is it? It's never going to change.
0: Uh, Yes, it's quite hard to see if you could, because basically it it implies knowledge about something outside of our own universe, which is practically not uh, easy to consider. Uh, Theorists come up with models in which this kind of thing is described. It's a perfectly reasonable idea, uh, but it's hard to see how there'd be uh, any kind of supporting evidence.
2: Hmm. So I suppose this is the basis of the anthropic principle, is it, that, that that we are, there's nothing special about our universe, we are just one of zillions of universes, it just so happens this universe uh, we popped up in and so we feel it's special, but actually there are
0: zillions out there. Yeah, I mean, the anthrop- anthropic principle it can be quite useful when you use it sort of kind of the other way around, where it's basically saying things have to be like it. it is because if they weren't, we wouldn't be here to observe it. And I think that way around it kind of makes more sense because mm. you don't inherently need uh, there to be you know, vast numbers of different universes out there, isn't it? I just happens to be one of them. It's literally, it could be equally, well, you know, toss the coin, this happened to be the universe that came along, and it was the right one because it had to be because we wouldn't be here otherwise to observe it.
2: I mean, it's almost like we're getting into metaphysics in in a way, aren't we? Uh, it is very much that we are getting <laughs> into metaphysics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me just uh, throw a couple of other theories that you mentioned in the book to you. Um, you talk about it from bit, Give me an idea of what that is. They
0: they sort of remind me, is that information from uh, observation? Uh, this is John Wheeler's. Uh, John Wheeler was a physicist um, who was the the mentor to the more famous Richard Feynman. Yeah, and Wheeler did a lot in the in the sort of mid 20th century history of modern physics. Uh, but he really liked sort of coining little phrases that mm. hopefully snappily <laughs> put something across. Uh, and it, this was really relating information and reality in in saying that uh, in some. Uh, ways you can regard if you like the nature of reality as being nothing more than information Uh, again we're getting a little bit esoteric and a bit metaphysical but information theory certainly proved incredibly valuable uh and is strongly linked to engineering so you know information has its sort of almost physical side uh if you look at a computer or something like that. Uh, and I guess it, it, it's not saying that. If from bit is not this theory that uh, sometimes is put around that the whole universe is a simulation. It's its not saying that we are literally information in a computer, but it's rather that you can equate the physical reality to bits of information. Right. I mean, I suppose if the simulation was
2: good enough, there would be no difference between that and reality.
0: Yeah, I said so that, that's uh. a different that's a separate sort of theory is also (laughs) out there again is totally speculative because again, there's no way you could sensibly prove anything. Um, Some people suggest that since it is possible that there are such things. If there were such things, there probably would be far many more of these simulations than there were realities. So the chances are we are in a simulation. But again, we're back to this, uh, you know, angels on a pinhead stuff, yes. really. Yeah, yeah, sure.
2: Um, you're quite critical
0: of string theory in the book. Is that still something that you're critical of? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there. Are, this is taking a step back from the picture of the universe, to the small end almost to how everything's made up mm. um, we have very good theories in quantum physics and in the general theory of relativity that explain the very small in quantum physics and the very large how universes, uh, gravity in general works with those two theories but the trouble is they don't fit together they're incompatible mm. and so since the 50s people have been trying to bring them together and the leading theory Still, at the moment, to do so is string theory. But the trouble is, it is something that now has been worked on by people for their whole careers, hundreds of people. And it still really is incapable of actually producing any useful predictions. That's one of the problems with it. It's very simple in some ways. It's the ways it describes things. Uh, So it describes everything as being made up of not particles, but but little string-like things where the vibration in those strings defines what kind of particle it is. And in that sense, it works well. But the fact is, it predicts millions of different potential universes of ways things can work. Uh, So it's very difficult to use it to predict anything effective there are alternatives that the, the strongest one being something called loop quantum gravity which is is getting a bit more support now but frankly the whole area to some extent is is a little bit in the doldrums in the in that it's so strongly at the theoretical end mm. and hasn't really got to the stage where we can put up a, you know an experiment which would differentiate between the theories as yet
2: yeah i mean i did I- a long time ago, I did read a, a book about string three, and it was very amusing because it, it was sort of trouser diagrams. Uh, <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> I was disappointed not to see any trouser diagrams <laughs> in the book um, because, I mean, essentially the, the strings exist interdimensionally; they 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 exist across the universe, so they can pop up. And I mean, that to dust my head in to think about <laughs> it. Yeah, do, do they rely on wormholes? Is that linked in with it? No, no
0: wormholes. No, came, okay. came out of good old um, general relativity, um, it was one yeah. of Einstein's things. So they originally called Einstein-Rosen bridges. Uh, and they're literally just a, a effectively a, a rip in space and time that links one point to another. Um, the thing with the string theory is that one of the unfortunate requirements of it is that there are not three spatial dimensions, but quite a lot more. Mm. Um, depending upon the version of the theory, the exact number more is variable, but certainly we're up in the sort of say nine or ten dimensions yeah um and most people have never noticed these other dimensions so the way the theory deals with it is to suggest they're actually very small and kind of rolled up right. <laughs> which then in- engages its own complexities but that's where some of these things like your, your your sort of strangeness that you're seeing in your trouser diagrams come out of
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so it's not you would, wouldn't consider a particularly fruitful road to
0: travel down in terms of cosmology. Well, it's, it's just difficult. I mean, you know, so many people have put so much effort into it and dedicated their working lives to it yeah. that it is very difficult to lose it. But I, I think increasingly people are, are of the opinion that something else is going to be required, that it, it is just not the right direction.
2: Okay. Um, now, bouncing brains. Yeah. Now, this is brains, B, R, A, N, E, S, and in membranes. Indeed. Um, yes. Tell me that, but lay that out in sort of simple terms.
0: Okay, well, this uh, is a fairly loose model. It depends on having string theory. So it depends on having those extra dimensions available to you. Uh, mm-hmm. And the idea of this is basically that the universe as we know it is effectively like a three-dimensional membrane floating in a multidimensional space of more than three dimensions. And the idea here is that two of these membranes collided at some point, well, 13.8 billion years ago. uh, And as a result of that, that effectively reset the status of of our universe as as starting again. Um, Because the problem with the idea that the universe has gone through lots of cycles of collapse and expansions, collapse and expansion is that the physics of this is a bit dubious because effectively you should be kind of running out of energy and it should get more and more dissipated. Mm. There's no evidence of that. Mm. Um, So this is a way kind of almost of bringing in something from the outside, uh, an exterior thing that that effectively resets us to starting from scratch. Uh, But these brains, these three dimensional membranes are expanding uh, and it's that expansion that we see as the as the, as the expansion of our universe um so it, it's it's a different way of, of looking at things it, it it doesn't really contribute that much as yet uh it's been around now actually probably about 20 years i think um so it's it's, it's just a, one of several different ways of, of thinking of things a little bit differently So
2: essentially it's saying that uh, it's not a closed system. So it's having energy coming from outside the system. So if you were to believe in a universe that was constantly contracting, expanding, Mm. that's a way of bringing in energy to make that process go on forever, I suppose.
0: Yes. Yes, that's right. Right. Um, It differs from the the sort of standard multiverse idea of each universe being a a bubble, as it were, within an expanding space, um, because you then do have interaction between the brains whereas with the the standard multiverse theory there isn't any interaction at all so we we know nothing of and can never and know anything about the universe outside our own
2: so in theory that's a more provable uh, theorem
0: the brains because there is
2: if there's bleeding through between the, the different membranes
0: yes in principle you you would hmm. you should be able to find more, some evidence of that as which there is none known as yet. Right. I would say one other thing. We talked about string theory and its sort of rival of loop quantum gravity. One thing about loop quantum gravity, if it is right, it does help with one of the real problems with the, the Big Bang Theory um, because the Big Bang Theory requires the universe to start with what's called a singularity. So this is something where everything is basically concentrated into zero space, Uh, So, it's infinitely dense and uh, has no dimensions. Now, as soon as infinity comes into physics, it really means our theory doesn't work anymore. So, it's the same with black holes. You know, black holes are are supposed to be infinitely dense. Um, What we really mean is that right in the middle there, we just don't know what's going on Uh, because, you know, infinity means that the theory is broken down. So maybe what we think of black holes aren't actually quite what they appear to be. And the same with the start of the universe. And and the nice thing about this loop quantum gravity is it gives you a way to have a sort of bounce at the start where it's something that has shrunk but never actually reaches zero size and then bounces out. Because loop quantum gravity requires the whole universe physically to be quantized, to to actually have little, uh, almost like pixels of the universe. So you can't get, there is no such thing as an infinitely small thing. You can't get below a certain size. Um, And that would get around some of the issues um, of the the Big Bang in terms of starting with a singularity.
2: Right, so that would say that there was something that had
0: dimensions at the before the big bang. So
2: if you if so yep. let's just get so the terminology the big bang is the ex, is the expansion is the explosion yep. of, of what was there at the beginning.
0: Yes and and in in standard big bang theory the universe literally starts from nothing so no time no space somehow there are within this no time no space there are still the rules okay. of physics. Uh, and that enables you to have quantum fluctuations because quantum theory says that even in empty space, you can have actually energy and and hence matter popping into existence if it's for a very brief amount of time, and it's these quantum fluctuations right when everything starts that supposedly starts the universe in the in the Big Bang picture, right. and there is literally no before. Uh, but the problem is it does require you to start pretty well well ex- absolutely with it, this concept of singularity, which uh, has some. Problems for physics, shall we say?
2: Yeah, I mean, is there any room for a creator of any sort there?
0: Um, it depends what you're talking about. I mean, a, in terms of the, yeah. if you're talking about standard Big Bang theory, the, it, it I mean, in some ways, it's probably the most consistent model with a, a traditional creation model. And that, to be honest, that was one of the reasons Fred Hoyle was so against it. Mm. Uh, he really, really didn't want to have a a model that would fit with a creator. Um, and of course, one of the main physicists originally contributing to what would become the Big Bang theory was was a Catholic priest. Right. And uh, you know, uh, he was obviously quite pleased. And although he was a physicist first, I think it's best to say in his theory, yeah. he was not unhappy because, in the end, the Big Bang theory requires the start of time and space and can say nothing about actually why that happened. No, of course not. No,
2: I mean, are you? Um, do you have any faith yourself, or you? Not. We well, don't have to answer. you don't want to. But just out of interest, whether you do, whether if you
0: do, whether you can square it with sort of the cosmology. Um, I would describe myself. I, I think as the astronomer Royal has done, as as a Church of England agnostic. <laughs> um, by which I mean I could never consider myself to be an atheist. Right. Uh, because I think that in itself requires you to have evidence for something that there isn't evidence for mm. i.e. the non-existence of god uh so i think agnosticism mm. is is the start it should be the starting point for a scientific viewpoint uh and culturally speaking uh, i like the uh church of england services and i i i'm very happy to not be sure um uh, yeah. so you know I'm sure everybody has their level of doubt. Um, uh, so I wouldn't say I was a total believer, but equally I wouldn't say I had no belief.
2: Just a few more questions, we'll finish. Um, reading your book, I mean, it's almost like there isn't a book long enough to make all the theories understandable. And I think this is a quote attributed to Richard Feynman, that if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. Um, is there sort of an element of truth that these ideas are so almost metaphysical that it's almost an elitism amongst scientists that you might be saying, well, just trust me on this one. There's no proof, there no evidence, but it sort of makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, physics has a, a real problem, really, since the end of the 19th century. Uh, I, I've just if you don't mind me plugging another book, no, no. I've just, uh, just written a book on, on somebody called James Clerk Maxwell, mm. who was a, a Scottish physicist towards the end of the uh, 19th century. Uh, the book's called uh, Professor Maxwell's uh, My Brain's Gone Blank. <laughs> uh, never mind. Um, it's all right. I'll come back to that. And um, Maxwell was the first to really incorporate mathematics totally into physics uh people like newton had made use of maths duplicitous demon duplicitous demon thank you professor uh, Maxwell's Duplicitus <laughs> Demon, uh yeah. because he, he came up with this something called maxwell's demon but, which is about thermodynamics so there's a different right. issue uh, but maxwell was the first one who started to drive the physics from the maths so in just des- in describing electromagnetism which is it was his area particular area of expertise Uh, He originally started with mechanical models of the universe, but then moved to pure mathematics as the way of describing it with no physical analogy. And Mm. modern physicists, modern physics is almost entirely driven from the mathematics. Now, that's fine as long as A, it isn't left totally isolated. And some would say some theoretical physicists are more worried about just playing with the maths than they are about reality. Mm. But the other thing is that it makes it very difficult for the physicist to explain to the non-physicist what's going on because it's not – there are no pictures. You know, there is no – it's literally down to the numbers, the maths. Um, Mm. And a lot of the things that they are quite firm about and quite strong on is based purely on on these mathematical models because the maths won't allow anything else to happen. Um, so one issue is in putting it across is the maths itself. We can't use the maths. And whenever our, somebody like me tries to talk about things like this, we're inevitably skipping around what's really happening because you can't, just can't talk through the maths itself. The other aspect is that once you get onto things like, you know, where did the universe come from? things are so indirect, the things you're measuring are so indirect, that inevitably there is quite a lot that is close to metaphysics rather than physics itself. So those two things both make it Mm. quite difficult Mm. to get across. Mm. But equally, you know, it's an area where there is lots of fascinating stuff going on. Uh, Things like, for instance, dark matter, dark energy are aspects of the universe that we still have no... We know they have to be there. There's something making things happen. But... We just haven't yet mm. pinned down what it is that's doing it at all. Um, and so, you know, if people think physics is pretty well over with and everybody's, everything's ticked apart from one or two bits and pieces, there's actually lots of fascinating stuff out there still to find out.
2: Mm. And a grand unified theory?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, I mean, that's what they're trying to do with string theory to slightly lesser scent with the, uh, the loop quantum gravity because that's not so grandiose. Um, not yet. And, I think it's arguably possible. It may never be possible, mm. you know, that these things just will never go together. But if they are to, we have to uh, pretty much abandon either general relativity or quantum theory and start again at, wow. okay. at, with something else. And both of them work so well. Yes. Yeah. It's very difficult to do that. Wow. OK. Um, so sort of turn our back on Einstein. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but but basically, you, <laughs> yeah. one of them has to be not quite right, right. to be able to put them right. together.
2: Um, because that—that's that, interesting, you say because there's a, a couple of points in your book you mention these theories that are rightness in inverted commas of the theories. Do they feel right? Mm. That seems very metaphysical, but I, I can understand that. Is—is is that important? Because like the Big Bang sort of feels. You could understand well that feels right as a cause and effect. We don't know what the cause is, but if something happens, whereas other, other theories, you it's they're so opposed to what we see in our everyday life that they don't feel right. But does that make them any
0: less valid? Um well I wouldn't say so because in you know, as as you said, illustrated with that quote from Richard Feynman, quantum theory is totally counterintuitive. Mm. And yet it is the most accurate and effective theory mm. that we have. Feynman also said the predictions of quantum theory are so accurate it's the equivalent of predicting the distance effectively across the Atlantic to the width of a human hair. It's that accurate in terms of measuring reality. Right. All of our electronics, all of our right. you know, modern technology is based entirely on quantum physics. Mm. Um, so it is incredibly effective it's just if you try to understand what's going on in a, in a sort of normal, what we could think of common sense way, mm. it just doesn't make sense. Mm. But the fact is, it works.
2: Mm. <laughs> um, okay. Well, last question to you. Uh, out of all these many theories, say, if we're talking about this in twenty, thirty 30 years' time, which, well, which, well, which one do you personally favor rather than which one do you think will last the longest? Which one do you naturally come down towards?
0: Well, I mean, the, there are elements of, of the Big Bang theory that, that it's hard to go against. I mean, mm. you know, the evidence is so clear in terms of expansion. Um, the evidence is clear in terms of if you. Run the film backwards, as it were, back into history, looking at something that was smaller and smaller. Um, It's more sorting out the details. So I think inflation could still be in trouble. Then we might have to look at a different way of explaining the things inflation was brought in to explain. And exactly what happens at the start, whether or not that is, uh, you know, literally from nothing or is actually a leftover from something else. I'm I'm quite comfortable, certainly, with with the idea of a a multiverse in principle, but not in in terms of this idea of uh, the anthropic principle that you want uh, to have a multiverse so ours could be like it is, because as far as I'm concerned, it just is. You don't have to worry about that. But more that I can't see anything wrong with this as a theory uh, and multiverse, um, but as you've said previously, we don't, we're not going to have evidence that will tell us either way with that. Mm.
2: All right. Well, thank you very much for speaking to me. I really appreciate it. I did enjoy the book very much. I do recommend it. And you, I know you've written many others as well, but I thought it was a, a very good introduction to the, to the many theories. It was excellent. Thank
0: you. Okay. Thanks very much.
1: Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. My thanks to Mark for agreeing to conduct that interview for The Mind Renewed, and my thanks especially to Brian Clegg for graciously agreeing to come on the show to talk about his book. Now, I have a few things that I want to say before closing, naturally enough, because this is my podcast and, of course, I wasn't the person doing the interviewing, so I have a few thoughts to share. But, of course, in what I'm about to say, I am conscious of the fact that Brian has no right of reply here, so I'm going to uh, tread quite carefully here in what I say. Um... The first thing I want to say is I'm delighted that trouser diagrams got a mention. Uh, I remember seeing those, I think it was in Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, which I had a go at reading years ago. There's an awful lot in that book that I didn't understand, but I had a go at reading it. And uh, one of the main things I did enjoy about it was these rather strange diagrams that looked like trousers. So, uh, sorry about my strange humour there, but I was delighted that they popped up in the conversation here. Um, The second thing is, Brian mentioned agnosticism during the interview. He said something like, um, agnosticism should be the starting point for a scientific viewpoint, which made my ears prick up because, of course, the term agnostic, agnosticism is often used in a religious context. And, of course, that was touched upon in the interview itself. Um, Anyway, I wondered whether what he said there might be misunderstood or indeed whether I've misunderstood him but I don't think so. I just wanted to say that I don't think that Brian Clegg means that a scientist should be a religious agnostic or that if you're going to be a real scientist you should be agnostic on religious matters. I I don't think he means that. I think he means something more like if you're a scientist, then you should try not to allow your religious beliefs, or indeed your a-religious beliefs, if you're an atheist, for instance, you should try not to allow those beliefs to influence the science that you are doing. You should strive to be as objective as possible. Not that anybody's going to achieve that perfectly, but you should try. We should try, if we're a scientist, to do that. And if that's what he means, then I and I think that is what he means, then basically I go along with that. That makes sense to me. I do wonder, however, if there are some deeper philosophical issues lurking there, which obviously it wasn't possible to go into in that interview. Questions like, what is the relationship between a person's worldview and the science that they do? Can a scientist or anybody else successfully detach themselves from their own worldview? You know, those fundamental beliefs that they have about reality. Can you detach yourself from those views? And if you can, should you? I mean, there are some deep questions here that obviously, as I say, go beyond the scope of this interview, but things that perhaps we might pursue in future at TMR. But as I say, as a rule of thumb, the kind of agnosticism that he mentions, that I think he mentions, seems sensible to me. The scientists should try to remain as objective as possible, you know, whatever their worldview commitment, they should try to be objective. Um, I also wanted to say that I'm not averse to the notion of a multiverse i do tend towards the notion of creation out of nothing creation ex nihilo so indeed if there is a multiverse then i would tend to think that that multiverse is probably created out of nothing by the god who is there um having said that if a multiverse is Shown to be at some point eternal, I think that's still possible to square with Christian belief. I remember reading C.S. Lewis. I can't remember which book it is, but he was he was talking about the possibility that the universe might be eternal and saying that that could still be consistent with belief in God and the belief in God as the cause of the universe in a slightly modified sense, um, understood as the eternal cause of the universe the eternal one upon whom the universe would be eternally dependent. Um, and he had the example of a ball resting on a cushion. Many of you will be aware of this. Many of you will have read the same thing. So the idea of, you know, that a ball resting on a cushion is the cause of the indent on the cushion. Okay, The ball and gravity cause the indent on the cushion. Well, just in this thought experiment, if you just imagine that perhaps that ball and that cushion had been sitting there forever, would the ball no longer be the cause of the indent on the cushion? Well, no, it still would be, even though the two had been there eternally. So in the same sense, it could be that God is the eternal cause of the universe, that the universe is eternally dependent on God. And so I think it's possible to construe it that way, if in fact it turns out that The multiverse if it exists is, in fact, eternal. Okay, I think that's possible. I nevertheless still think that creation ex nihilo is is more consistent with biblical teaching, and, as I say, that's what I would expect to be the case. But, you know, if it turns out to be the opposite, then I think Christian faith has, you know, enough resources within it to um, comprehend that science. Um, I wasn't quite sure of his position on the so-called anthropic principle. I'd like to have pressed them a little more on that. I wasn't sure whether he was saying anthropic ideas do have some kind of explanatory value or that they are effectively just a sort of truism. I wasn't sure whether he was saying that the fact that we're here to observe the universe means that the cosmic lottery must have just come up for us, otherwise we wouldn't be here to observe the universe, or whether he was saying that it just must be the case that the universe is the way it is with its life-permitting conditions because we're here observing it. So that must be the case. But of course, that's just a truism that doesn't really say anything about whether we're here by chance or whether we're here by design. It's just to say that the universe must be this way. It is in fact the case that the universe is this way because we're here as sentient intelligent beings uh, constituted within this universe and are observing this universe. So that is in fact the case. The universe is that way. As I say, that doesn't explain anything but leaves open the question as to whether we're here by chance or by design. So I wasn't sure what his position was was on that Um, obviously I as a Christian think we're here by design but um, that again is not something that um, came out in the interview and I didn't have the opportunity of course to press on that one I was interested in the notion of it from bit and the name uh, uh, John Wheeler came up in the discussion that existence is perhaps somehow fundamentally related to information now that's an interesting idea that's come up before on TMR and I would point listeners in the direction of a couple of interviews that we had that touched on that kind of idea from a theistic perspective. Uh, Dr. Robert Marks, the interview with Dr. Robert Marks, and indeed our more recent interview with Dr. Edgar Andrews. So please do, if you're interested in the idea that there may be some fundamental relationship between uh, reality itself and information, then um, I would point you in the direction of those two interviews. Lastly, I want to say that uh, I was impressed by Brian's admission that uh, a good deal of cosmology is metaphysical. Now, that I think was a very important point to come out of this interview, and I really wish that more science writers and other popularizers of science would admit that, that there is a great deal that is metaphysical in the world of cosmology. And uh, I like his even-handedness and and the fact that he is not sensational in his approach and, you know, is prepared to say things as he sees them. And I think a particular one on that one is where he admitted that, you know, when an infinity turns up in physics, well, that's tantamount to saying we don't really know what's going on here. And I, I like that. I like that humility and that honesty in presenting the things of the world of science. Anyway, as I say, there were some just points of slight disagreement, perhaps, or more not sure quite what was being said in the interview at times. But um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. It was an interesting interview, and uh, it brings up all kinds of issues that I think will be good to explore in the future on TMR. So again, my thanks to both Mark and Brian for that interview. And at the moment, I'm not able to say what's coming up next time. Uh, There are lots of things that are in the pipeline. You go to the schedule page, you'll see some of those things. And there are some other things as well, which I can't confirm just at the moment but quite what's going to happen when i don't know but as i said before i do hope that these podcasts are from now on going to be slightly more regular i'm very grateful to all of you and i very much hope to be speaking to you again in the not too distant future you have been listening to me julian charles of the mind renewed.com and indeed mark campbell and brian clegg and i hope to speak to you again in the very near future